the Biden administration, instead of going through Congress, which they are constitutionally required to do, they have used regulation to create a new environment for energy. So they're making it more expensive to drill, more difficult to drill, uh, extended the time it takes to drill. And oh, by the way, and most fundamentally, they've removed the capital using the, I don't know if your audience knows about environmental, social, and governance standards. These are what publicly traded companies have to abide by. And this is the mechanism that most profoundly was going to be used to increase the price of energy. Enter Vladimir Putin. And suddenly, oh my gosh, we can expedite this process of, of high energy prices and blame it on Putin, even though what Alma and I just described earlier was that prices were already going up. In other words, the regulatory impact that has, un, that has occurred under this administration had already created that economic reality. What they couldn't do without, without political consequence and without the American people noticing was that they couldn't actually take responsibility for it, even though... Uh, if we were to w wander into the White House today, there's a lot of backslapping and high-fiving because this is truly the world that they've envisioned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, um, how do you guys know each other? Only you go first. <laughs> um, so we we own kind of like sister companies in the oh, Williston cool. Oil Patch. We both advise businesses on various aspects of um, the oil field. Me more on the safety and compliance side. Joan more on the the business advisory side, um, but yeah, it's a small town. Everyone is bound to cross paths eventually, and I'm very very lucky that we did. And Joan, when did you start up your business? Or well, I've been in oil and gas. Uh, I moved there about seven years ago to Williston, okay. which is shocking to hear that come out of my mouth. <laughs> Time of the years pass, yeah. but because I was in Seattle, and I thought, gosh, when is the next opportunity I'll have to be this close to an oil play? Uh, I took the opportunity to just pop over there. It's only 17 hours from Seattle. And so uh, I went over there and uh, had already, I already had a business consulting firm. So it was about really understanding what the specific problems were in the oil and gas industry and bringing solutions to those business owners in that space. And then of course you, like any industry, you end up learning uh, kind of the dynamic and structure of the industry. And that opens up, you know, new, new options and alternatives in the advising space. So business advising, could you give like a sketch of kind of what you basically offer? Well, yeah, absolutely. So I do a lot of what I would describe as C-suite advising. So for example, you might have uh, a, a C-suite, like a CEO who's trying to gain greater access to an oil producer, and doesn't doesn't necessarily know either the the structure at the corporate level. So let's, for example, just use a company like Hess. They would be considered a a major producer. Uh, Hess might, and they own assets in in North Dakota. They might have a, a vendor, a service provider. And and again, just for your audience, Benjamin, uh, when I talk service provider. Oil producers, all they do is own. I say I don't say that with it. All they do, they own the asset but they don't actually maintain the asset. All of those services that make an oil well pump and keep mm -hmm. an oil well pumping, all of the actual drilling that goes on in an oil well, all of that is done by contractors. So the oil producer, quote unquote, is the, the entity that owns the, the mineral rights on a given piece of land or offshore. If that, if and the pump the too, or is the pump uh, on loan? Well, they'll, they'll pay for that, but it, it's installed yeah. and maintained by contractors. Okay. This is one thing I, I wish more people understood this. I mean, when you, when you talk about big oil, quote unquote, you're picturing like some, some big shot executive in a boardroom who's just like eating ham, like prosciutto off of a plate, and like getting his interns <laughs> to bring him coffee. But like, yeah, it's really these small fantasies. <laughs> it's all off the cuff, Benjamin. Um, <laughs> but it's really like the entire oil and gas economy is built on the backs of these very small businesses. Some of them are one person deep. 
um, 20 person people deep, a hundred people. It's very, very small scale. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, Joan, you, uh, you work with the smaller companies then. And I work with with both, right? Because they have different needs. So for example, I have relationships with oil producers and there's usually uh, one or two levels, depending on the company of management who works directly with the company in the field. I'm talking about executive management, right? And so there are things about their own service providers that they do not know that I believe they need to know. So I'll work with them if they want to discover, well, what, what, what do we not know about the, the play? They call it a play where oil is produced. So <laughs> Texas is a different play than North Dakota, but they use the word play. So they, what do they not know about their, their service providers that they need to know? Um, I also do work more recently, and by recently in the last couple of years, I've moved into the trading space. So you work with producers differently when you're trading what they call spot trading in oil and gas. So I'm not a futures trader. I'm not trading, uh, you know, sort of for oil today based on a, a price we anticipate three months from now, but rather uh, a company needs oil delivered a month from now uh, into Europe. They want to buy it today, that, that type of trading. In okay. any event, so I work between, I, I like to think of myself as a bridge between the oil producer and the service providers. And each of those, those entities has different needs. Uh, but I definitely live in a problem-solving uh, space in both cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we speak about plays or these different operations, and you said that there were different, uh, it's different in Texas than North Dakota, it's not just different legally with the state apparatus and uh, compliance stuff, but also the way that the oil is extracted and maybe even some sort of cultural uh, differences. Uh, have, you, have you guys worked in other than North Dakota, or are you just principally in North Dakota? So if a company is in North Dakota, it's very likely that they're in other states as well. So this is something that came up in our last conversation, Benjamin. For example, I I work with Hess occasionally. Hess owns assets in Guyana, but that doesn't mean I'm like working internationally per se. Um, You're you're working with a company that just happens to have these different needs. And the same applies to the small service providers that are underneath these large producers. Um, uh, There are huge geological differences between different oil plays. So the Bakken is known for being uh, especially salty. Is that correct, Joan? And especially hot. And that that changes uh, what technology you're using when you're extracting um, this substance from uh, these these rocks where it's where it's squeezed really tightly in, um, and that's the job of a geologist uh, and the job of the many 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 people in the oil field supply chain is determining exactly how to extract that oil in the most efficient um, and thorough way possible. And by hot, do you mean like the sulfur content or the temperature of the oil? It's a good question. The sulfur content varies also. Okay. Uh, I'm but impressed, the temp- Benjamin. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I was like, Joan, is he listening in on our conversation? Um, the, the heat, uh, I remember one time Joan and I were sitting down with our friend Monty Bessler, who is a frack engineer. He's one of the best frack engineers um, in the whole Bakken play. If not the world, they, they fly him out to like Australia, New Zealand yes. sometimes. Um, he's actually in my new music video, which is about the Bakken. We can discuss that later. Um, but Monty was talking about how the heat and the salt content of the Bakken play mean that the microbes in like way miles under the earth interact differently than they would if we were down in Texas. So you don't have to use as, as much biocide or any biocide, for example. So these are very, very um, um, minute differences that can make massive, uh, massive differences to a company's profit margins or ability to have any success drilling at all. Vocabulary uh, moment, biocide? Biocide, exactly what it sounds like. Something that kills. Yeah. (laughs) Is is that, I'm I'm not making that up, Joan, right? No, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're we're laying the groundwork, but I really want to get to why the hell gas is so expensive right now. (laughs) Question of the hour. Yeah. Before we get there, um, just for a little bit of added context, let's give the chronology how long you both have been in oil specifically so we can see what changes you have seen and then try to suss out why those changes have occurred. So I'll go first, if I may, Alma. 
so I, Benjamin, came, I, I arrived in oil and gas just before what would be described as the, the, the first downturn since the 2000s. So if you look at, one has to look at oil from the lens of, of long-term, if you will. So if we just put a marker in the sand of, let's say, 2000, just as an easy marker, it, since 2000, there have been two, quote-unquote, downturns, and one was in 2016. So I got there in 2014, mm-hmm. just before things were really, uh, you know, they were in stride. We, we became energy independent in 2015. It was a really exciting time. Uh, to be entering the industry, if you will. uh, North Dakota was still considered an immature play. In other words, there was a lot of things about the geology, about the chemistry, about the physics of the play that were still not entirely understood. There was a lot of asset swapping still going on. You had a lot of, uh, in an oil play, the natural maturation, if you will, is you've got a lot of what they call wildcatters and, and a lot of speculation that goes on early in the play. And then as the reserves are determined to be sufficiently uh, significant, as, as happened in North Dakota, you start to have larger companies and more stable companies come in. In 2015, you had a lot of private equity enter the, enter the play. And so things were really uh, coming into stride. And then uh, right around 2016, the price began to... Uh, go down a lot but it had okay. a lot to do it's counterintuitive so i'll stop there and i'll let alma jump in, well, in terms just of when just to define a downturn you're saying that the price of oil gets cheaper which leads to less business somehow like the, the negative well it, i mean if, you know for again for the audience i know your audience is is smart and they understand economies in a in a macro sense oil is no different than any economy in that it's a basic supply and demand curve the <laughs> one of the sort of unique elements of any commodities that you're talking about a global market, not necessarily a local market. So we have our own pressures in Washington state, Washington state for your audience has the lo- the highest gas tax in all of America is right here in Washington state. And so it's at least 50 cents a gallon just for the state tax. Uh, every 50 cents of every gallon is going to the governor. Uh, and then as you go to different states, the, t- the taxes are different and therefore the ultimate price that you pay at the pump. But in terms of the global market, there are markets that are set at, at, globally, just like with soybeans, just like with corn. And so the prices change on supply and demand, but sometimes where the supply comes from has an effect on the price that somebody can earn. So because North Dakota is very far north, obviously the cost to transport the oil and gas to the terminals in Houston to be shipped overseas is going to add to the price that an end user would pay for that. And when I say end user, I'm talking about a, a wholesale end user, right? A refinery or uh, typically refineries, right? So there, you're going to pay more for North Dakota crude oil than you would for Texas crude oil. There are, there are uh, a whole bunch of variances that can arise in oil, depending on what part of the world you're in. But nonetheless, the farther you are from the port, just like with any commodity, the farther you are uh, from the freeway, you know, the, the more expensive and longer it will take that thing to be delivered there. These are basic concepts, obviously, about the market. But everything goes through Houston? Everything produced uh, in North America? I'm Houston, it's called the Houston Terminals. It's the Gulf Coast in general. So there are lots and lots of refineries along the Gulf Coast. But the Houston Terminals are, that is the port out of which uh, the, the oil and gas flows. There are okay. also um, uh, refineries in different, so there are refineries in Washington State. We know up north, there's a refinery up north. So there are, but but when you're talking about the where the market is set out of, it's out of, yeah. the, out of Houston. Okay. So it's a very multifactorial question, what's happening with gas prices, as you can already tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to circle back to your question about our respective experiences in this field, um, I came in just a little bit after Joan, and my start date is kind of fuzzy because my very first gig in oil and gas was simply copy editing safety manuals for my buddy's company. I was a copy editor before I got into this business. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I like to think the detail orientation required for that translates very well to safety and compliance. Um, but yeah, I, I would take trips up there, kind of go back and forth. And very quickly, like once I got the gist of it, I started falling in love with the business, the people, the everything. Um, and 
right like it, when i first began was when that downturn that she that joan mentioned happened and i had no context for what that meant i had no sense of like what the what the tone of the town is like when it's when oil is 100 versus when it's negative 40 for example um i just kind of knew that i was like pressing buttons and doing my job and it wasn't until really 2020 that i became in touch with what the downturn means for our local economy and, and even the global economy okay so um the price that I'm going to pay at the pump is not necessarily core. I mean, there's correlations between what I pay and what uh, these oil manufacturers and these plays produce or what they make off of the oil. I'm not totally economically uh, the most acute person, but I'm sure that there's a lot of differences between why I'm paying $5 and whether or not oil has a big price or a small price, or is it directly correlated? I don't know to what degree those things are connected. Can you help me understand that? And and I, I, I understand that it's good for oil when oil costs $100 a gallon, right? Ah, well, mm, I don't know. Ah, that's, that's a great question. Don should weigh in on this because okay. it's, that's not quite a straightforward yes. So that's that's what the intuitive answer would be. Oh, they're making more money. They must love this. In fact, that's not actually the case. If you were to ask most people in oil and gas, and, and the market will reflect this over time again, uh, there's you would always hear in oil and gas, we would just rather that oil gets to, and what would that number be? Somewhere between $70 and $80 a barrel. Now, why is that? Because if you are, if you have a, a portfolio of assets, and you, and and again, for your listeners, it's important to know that from the first day that you put uh, a pumping a, a pumping unit on your well, I, I won't get too technical, but from the moment you start producing a well, there's what they call a decline curve, and that means that the oil that's in that well is perpetually in in declination, right? And so what does that mean? That means that in order for you to know and understand the timing of when to bring the next well on, you want to be able to model that from a pricing perspective. And, and so high prices like we're experiencing now or very low prices that we experienced in some of these downturns, the 16 and the 20s, those actually are anomalies. And producers don't prefer that because it makes it very difficult to make long-term business decisions. And these are long-term assets. Mm -hmm. You produce a well for 30 to 50 years, depending on what play you're in. So if you drill a well today, depending on the, the, the geology and all of the, the uh, kind of the engineering details of said well, you're talking about a 30 to 50-year asset. And, and so producers don't like it when when prices are this high because it makes it too risky to know when to bring on the next asset to hold or to lean in those things are a significant element now as we get into the discussion further benjamin i want to explain actually uh, i want to kind of address some of the things that people are hearing in the media and why producers not only do they not like the price they don't like the environment right now the economic environment that exists because it's making it very difficult to make some of those business decisions that are so essential to us, the consumer and, and the world and the experience that we're having. So by there, environment, you mean the inflation and yeah, the, the economic these... environment. Precisely. Yeah, okay. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. okay. So um, where, where do we go from here? We're, we're taking oil out of the ground and there's a pricing structure because there's this huge investment, 30 to 50 years, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of things riding on that um, with employment and all this machinery that you have to invest a ton of money in uh, to get going. So they want a stable market. They don't like right. it when it's too low. They don't like it when it's too high because they don't know when it's too high. If people will cut back on their oil consumption, that means that it'll stockpile or something. Is that what well, right? Having? Like it's right because you, you you're talking about uh, essentially trying to model if we drill at price X. Uh, we have inputs of Y, we're going to sell at Z, right? Okay. Uh, but if suddenly all of those inputs, the labor, the transportation, and then you get to market and there's no supply uh, or there's no demand, as the case was in 2020, right? Because everybody stopped flying, for example, stopped driving. Uh, these are these are dynamics that no business owner, okay. you know, one of the things that the market, whether it's the market for oil and gas, whether it's the market for uh, vegetables, wh whatever it is, market certainty as consumers we like certainty do we like going to target now and half the shelves are empty 
We don't like that because we just wasted our time going to the shop. And the three of the five things I came to the shop for aren't on the shelf. Nobody likes that. Right. So certainty is what the market that's, you know, if you, if you talk about between 70 to $80 that delivers certainty for both the producer and for the consumer. So $70 barrel of oil is going to be in the marketplace. That's going to be a, a, a very reasonable and much lower price. So if we look today, the oil, the gasoline price today, the consumer is paying 50% more today than they were 14 months ago, right? Now, yeah. if, if, if for Alma and I, uh, we you know, hear about, oh, the war in Ukraine, oh, this is why the price has gone up. That is just plainly not true that what's going true. on in Ukraine. No, what's going on in Ukraine is a dynamic, but it's only a dynamic. Uh, it's only one dynamic of many. But for Alma and I and anybody in the industry, we've been watching the price of oil going up and up and up. Right before Ukraine, that whole conflict in Ukraine began, prices were banging off 100, you know, they were 95 to $100 mm-hmm. round numbers, right? So this is not these high prices. That's that's thirty dollars higher than what I just told you. Twenty to thirty dollars higher than producers would prefer, right? So so the high price today is getting directly reflected in the market because it's it's you've got a long term supply challenge in America, and you've got this pressure to not produce oil and gas in a general sense globally. In other words, you've got a, a movement saying oil and gas, we want to make this quote unquote energy transition. And that is creating uncertainty in the market. It's create the what is certain is that if today everybody stopped producing oil and gas, there is not sufficient amounts of any alternative energy that would deliver to the needs of the current market today. Full stop. Mm-hmm. That's just the economic reality. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Alma, do you want to jump in here? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes, every word of that I um I agree with. And I and I would just add um the industry feels utterly slapped in the face that the current gas prices are being blamed on something that is seemingly out of the current administration's control. Um, as Joan mentioned, prices had been climbing, 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 just edging on $100 a barrel. And me, little old me, who hadn't really been reading the Wall Street Journal every day like I like I should be, I was just watching oil prices, paying no attention to foreign affairs. I had no idea anything was going on in Ukraine until things really started to get hot. And there was actually this funny moment where I had posted a Twitter status when oil hit $100. Like, wow, this time hasn't been $100 since 2014. This time I'm actually ready for it. Isn't that great? Let's just like take a moment to celebrate. And I got shellacked by some people um, in my in my uh, among my followers who thought that I was celebrating there being a war in Ukraine. But I had no idea that that was even the case because my head was in the sand. Um, the prices were just that close to a hundred dollars already. Yeah, um, there are political dynamics that make the war in Ukraine very. Um... Uh, convenient uh, for our administration because they get to mm-hmm. lump all these Without different Putin's problems price together. Hike. Yep. Yeah, Putin's price so hike. specifically within gas, let's trace back. Um, let's let's walk through what, Obama to Trump to Biden and how these different administrations' relationship to gas or to energy in general has impacted gas prices, and then what this whole thing about being energy independent is. So I'll, I'll take this one and start with this, Alma. The, the thing that you're, I'd like your listeners to understand is, is that the, the entire discussion around energy immediately always goes kind of everybody gets in their corner and they stop listening. And so one has to pull way back and understand that this idea of quote unquote energy transition and alternative energies is on one hand, a technology play. In other words, anybody who who lives in a sp- in any market, but let's you know again, we're talking about the energy market. Everybody's keen on, gosh, if we can capture, if our battery technology is such, and we can capture uh, uh, solar, if if there's uh, enough capability technologically to push uh, energy captured from wind into the grid, these are all perfectly fine things, right? There's hydrogen. There's there's a whole slew of quote unquote solutions. And this whole idea of all of the above energy, that was a a political term in a a campaign or two ago, a cycle or two ago, uh, is genuinely 
something that, that within the oil and gas industry is well understood. And in fact, because the oil and gas industry in modernity, there's an enormous amount of technology and technological innovation that has occurred just in the last 20 years, uh, probably in the last 10 years, even more so. And we are, we are drilling faster, more safely, more cleanly, uh, all of the markers that one would look for in an industry and say, gosh, this is nothing but, uh, you know, a, an upturn of, of positive of positive news has gone on in oil and gas. It doesn't mean that the reputation that the, that the general public has been spoon-fed is, uh, you know, we could get into the politics of that, but what that has done from a policy perspective, you have both governments, both in Europe and in the United States, administ different administrations that value that truth and that reality differently, right? So from the energy sector, the fact of the matter is Everybody in America enjoys the lifestyle they have because of the oil and gas industry. That, and, and people can feel however they'd like about that. But nonetheless, our lives that we live every single day are in no small way um, the result of what goes on in oil and gas. And I'm talking about the paint on your walls, the carpet in your car, the carpet in your house, the tiles in your house, the, the, I mean, you the name fertilizer, it. They make the, fertilizer from natural gas, right? <laughs> your listeners like, probably already know this. It's, they literally are able to extract nitrogen from the air using natural gas, um, and just generate fertilizer for your food out of thin air. It's incredible. And who knows that? I mean, what are, what's going to happen to food prices if natural gas is no longer being extracted? It's yes. coming. It's here. It's coming. Yeah. Right. And so, so the, the, it's important for the consumer to understand that the politics of energy is now actually the reality of the words are starting to come home. And the reality of the words is that if people want the lifestyle that they've become accustomed to, if they want to be, be able to travel and drive and, or walk or bike or do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it, which I think we can all agree Americans like our ability to move around how and when we want, then there's no way to achieve that lifestyle without oil and gas being a part of that. So going back to your original question of, of the various administrations, there has been a long and ongoing effort by beginning, I mean, strongly and fiercely in the Obama administration uh, to convince the world that we need to, quote unquote, move to this other place called alternative energies. But nobody, they, they've used the words, but nobody has articulated what that means in practice. Because if one begins to kind of take the layers of that onion off, I assure you, nobody will want the onion because what that means is everything is more expensive. You have less freedom to choose the products that you desire. Every, your movements, your products, your lifestyle, everything will go up to much higher prices. And generally speaking, and this is already being experienced, for example, in California, uh, you now have governments telling you what kind of stove you can put in your house. It doesn't matter if you like to cook on gas in California, the state of California has decided for you that you should not be able to decide what kind of stove that you have. And why have they done that? Because California has through their legislation, uh, most, predominantly legislation, uh, excuse me, predominantly regulation, less legislation. They have through edict announced to consumers that we are no longer going to permit you to make these decisions that we as Americans really value. And so that process is not just happening in America, it's happening globally. So ironically, multiple administrations, both domestically and in Europe, and, and the German uh, uh, under Merkel and, and before her, um, uh, uh, not Schultz, he's currently, uh, his name will come to me in a moment. They worked very hard at, at moving in this same direction, moving Europeans away from what turned out to be liquid natural gas is extremely clean energy. And they move them into a place of dependence like the United States is now sitting, depending upon people in other countries that don't have the same values and ideals that we do in the West about democracy, about liberty, about freedom. We've now become dependent on them to dole out our energy to us, when in fact we have the capability domestically to do that. So it's been multiple administrations merely using words, but not painting the picture of the reality of what that will mean to our lifestyle. So when you hear, you know, uh, 
gosh, uh, I don't know, pick your comedian, go out on the man on the street and ask, hey, are you willing to not fly, uh, you know, but one time every three years? Oh, I mean, what? what? I don't, I don't want to have to do that. Uh, but are you, uh, you know, are you a proponent of alternative energies? Absolutely. Well, we have to we have to be sort of more thoughtful, in my opinion, about when we support these initiatives that politicians put in front of us. We have to be wise enough to ask, well, what does that mean? Well, the I, I guess the counter argument to that is that, yeah, sacrificing now to ensure that the world doesn't devolve into a sooty ball slinging around the sun with some sort of, you know, everybody's choking and the, the seas are rising and, you know, all that stuff. So the the what they're trying to avoid is uh, at least a, a a picture of a dystopia, right? So why wouldn't we want to spend less, do less, um, consume less, if it means that future generations will persist? What's interesting to me, Benjamin, is that consumption is never the topic of conversation. Um, Americans have this impression that they can maintain their current lifestyle. um, And these innovators will just innovate nothing like out of thin air for them so that they can keep, you know, having their, their light work on their wall and having their car work when they, when they turn the ignition, if, if I guess ignitions don't exist anymore, they've already been innovated away. Um, But, but at the same time, the American public is insistent on reprimanding the very people who are innovating. I mean, you think of Elon Musk, who should be a hero on the left for um, not only pioneering electric vehicles, but making them cool, like making them the things that you hear about in rap songs. Um, But every time somebody innovates, every time they get a little too successful, um, it's like a racehorse that you really want to win, but you're going to starve him of all the things that he needs. You're going to starve him of any reward at the end. Um, You're going to beat him. You're going to shame him. uh, But you still you still expect that victory. So if consumption were the thing that was on the table, I mean, like I I do more walking than the average the average. climate activists that I know. I take public transportation uh, in LA. I'm the only person in LA that I personally know who takes public transit. Uh, I'm happy to lower my consumption. I just don't think the American public is prepared for that, nor do they really understand what it would mean to not have the option to have a gas stove or to really have to only fly once every three years, or the, like these big these big things that, that don't occur to them. They think they'll be able to maintain everything of the status quo without sacrificing. The, Joan, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Well, yeah, no, that's, the, I mean, for sure, that's what you're talking about. And it, it kind of just, again, it, it really is a question of, well, number one, I'm older than both of you by a considerable number of years. So part of my own reaction when I hear this is, oh, here we go again, because we've already lived through this this whole prediction of the end of humanity like this is not the first time it seems like once one to 1.5 times per generation there is some uh you know just dreadful reality that we're planning for and that's always the mechanism by which government tends to try to move people is this this future fear right do you see the fear today for some future event that nobody can prove will or will not happen and that's the beauty of it right and so there are people alive today who predicted that mankind would be wiped out by i think two years ago right because it seemed like a long time ago when they were saying it (laughs) so part of me also i kind of smile i think oh i'll give you 10 to 20 years and we'll you know life will teach you that that these are tools of politicians not uh not pictures of reality. And, and I, I, you know, whether on the left or the right, I do think I would like to think that people are becoming wise to this because the natural question is in any leadership, why are the same people telling us what we have to do in order to quote unquote, save the planet? Why are they flying to Davos? 400 jets are parked on the, on the landing strip, fossil fuel powered jets at Davos as they go to talk about the environment that is being ruined by humans. This is a richness of irony that I think is worth noting, right? So, so if one is to look at leadership, there's no leadership in practical, to, to your point, Alma, in practical reality. Will Americans or Europeans have the, the interest or, or inclination to make the sacrifice on the consumption side, number one. But oh, number two, 
haven't we all heard this before? And the reality is only if you're old enough, have you heard it before, but it's worth noting, gosh, this sounds very familiar to what it used. You know, we, this, we were all going to be dead by now. And that's also worth noting. So I'm a little more, I I'm not a cynical person at all, actually. And Alma, you can, you can jump in because you know me, I don't think of myself as cynical. I think of myself as practical. And I think practically speaking, we as Americans have to have a fierce conversation with ourselves. And it doesn't mean that if somebody disagrees with me that they're evil or that I'm evil. It just means we disagree. But I think the importance of challenging our leaders, you guys do it first and maybe we'll come on, but they're not willing to do it. And I think that's instructive, should be instructive to everybody. Mm-hmm. There's one more thing that I think is important to add. Um, Joan had mentioned earlier that natural gas is an eminently clean fuel. Um, I think, what are the stats? It's like uh, petroleum is, uh, no, coal Coal is 42% more carbon emitting than petroleum. And petroleum is 18% more carbon emitting than natural gas. Well, natural gas should be the savior of the day. You know, it, it's, it's um, it was actually when hydraulic fracturing was first pioneered, the left looked to natural gas as the perfect bridge to a cleaner future that they'd all been waiting for. The problem was that the bridge was a little too long. Natural gas was a little too cheap and a little too abundant. And so it got in the way of the greater plan, but it got in the way because it's extremely fuel dense and efficient and, and, and clean. So um, the story of human industry is that of decarbonization naturally through innovation over time. This is what happens as societies get richer, they pollute less. Yes. Okay, so something among the activist leftishness is uh, zero emissions. And so they don't want any iterative steps towards zero emissions. They want it to be implicated or implemented just overnight. Is that what you're kind of pointing to? Is that the goal? Zero emissions. Uh, That's their stated goal. Uh, and, And it's interesting because even the Paris Climate Accords, you'll remember the last administration had the United States pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. And this was, I mean, the end of the universe. Oh, my gosh, we're all gonna. Well, in short order, because of natural gas, our emissions levels fell below that which were defined in the Paris Climate Accords. In other words, we exited that, we exited that and achieved the limit without all of the political dial dialing in, because this isn't just about oil and gas, right? So we achieved the standard, but that wasn't good enough. And this administration immediately jumped us back into the Paris Climate Accords because that's the emissions level are not just what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. This has a lot to do with how can how can our lives be more deeply controlled by government? Uh, and how do we get to tell you that? We get to track how much your car is emitting, how much your light bulbs are emitting, how much your stove is emitting. So now, as is being realized in California, you're not allowed to own a gas stove because the government has decided that for you. That will begin to happen in greater and greater uh, occasion if we we are focused on this imaginary line of zero emissions. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, I guess the, the cake would be the zero emissions, uh, the utopia, and then the, uh, the stick is the, uh, you know, imminent destruction of our livelihood and the end of the humanity as we know it more or less, um, graphically, um, discussed. So with those two ideals on, on, you know, kind of, controlling the narrative or defining the narrative, there are iterative steps that are being taken by our government to change uh, how we live. Uh, and to and that comes down to changing how much we pay at the pump. Is there a direct correlation between the $5 uh, that I pay for a gallon of gas and decisions that have been made since the Obama administration? And what are the, what is the correlation yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, Benjamin, I've written a lot about this. Uh, so I write a lot about oil and gas. And one of the f- the ways I've just described this in the last number of weeks is this feigned outrage over Putin causing high prices is literally, according to the Biden administration, a gift from heaven that they, they couldn't have. This is so ideal for the world they envision, which is they want to get to the point where energy is too expensive. Gasoline is too expensive for most people to put in their car. And, and, and this is manifest by their flippant attitude of just buy an electric car. The, the, the idea that most of America could afford an electric car, let alone that they would choose to drive one. 
um, is such an egregious assumption by some, by government about what the consumer wants. But ultimately and fundamentally, higher energy prices is directly, and this is achieved through you interrupt distribution. So when what happens to your, your product on the shelves of Target, when your supply chain is interrupted, there aren't as many of those things. And what happens if there are fewer of the thing you want to buy, the price goes up, right? So, so the administration, the Biden, it began with Obama. It is, while we were all in lockdown, the Biden administration, instead of going through Congress, which they are constitutionally required to do, they have used regulation to create a new environment for energy. So they're making it more expensive to drill, more difficult to drill, uh, extended the time it takes to drill. And oh, by the way, and most fundamentally, they've removed the capital using the, I don't know if your audience knows about environmental, social and governance standards. These are what publicly traded companies have to abide by. And this is the mechanism that most profoundly was going to be used to increase the price of energy. Enter Vladimir Putin. And suddenly, oh my gosh, we can expedite this process of, of high energy prices and blame it on Putin, even though what Alma and I just described earlier was that prices were already going up. In other words, the regulatory impact that has, un, that has occurred under this administration had already created that economic reality. Okay. What they couldn't do without, without political consequence and without the American people noticing was that they couldn't actually take responsibility for it, even though... If we were to wander into the White House today, there's a lot of backslapping and high-fiving because this is truly the world that they've envisioned. And they've been working hard. They've been working multiple administrations to get us there. And part of the angst toward Trump was fundamentally because Trump envisioned a different kind of world in it as it relates to energy and a whole bunch of things. And I don't want to get into the Trump. Trump, I mean, I've laughed endlessly about Trump's style. It's very <laughs> abrasive and, and funny and humorous to me, but it was clearly maddening to many people. So maddening, though, that they became blinded to actually what he was trying to articulate. Right. So so the kill the messenger, ignore the message. And, and now what we're seeing is the messenger and the message are now aligned and prices are going up and they will continue to go up to levels that will drive this economy into a recession, the likes of which we have not seen since this kind of thinking was in the White House in 1976 under Jimmy Carter. Okay. So Again, the, you guys are all too young to know that. No, I, I was born in the Carter administration right before. Um, <laughs> This recession, though, so, okay, so part of the game plan of the administration is to affect uh, more control over energy and then somehow, I guess, gamble that technological solutions will arise, batteries will magically be invented to shuttle us around, or they don't even care. They want to kill energy they, because energy, maybe they believe that it's leading to uh, a dystopia, or maybe it's more about control. But even though they're doing that, this is your argument, they're doing that, they're controlling our energy, all the prices, and therefore the entire economy is being affected by an energy policy within the administration now and then the Obama administration before it. They can never take responsibility for that because they, they still have to obey uh, the polls. They still have to be accountable as long as they are going to, to allow us to keep them accountable to the democratic uh, process. So they can't take responsibility for this. They will deny it and look at all these different excuses. And, uh, you know, I made a meme about this when, um, when Ukraine first started, Bette Midler and all these liberals were saying, I'm glad to pay more at the pump to you know, save the child of the Ukraine, you know, if, if that's what I have to do. <laughs> and then I made a meme about like all these oil execs, execs laughing their asses off because they're reveling in profits. But the other uh, boogeyman is the oil executive, but it's really the administrations. It's really our government. So it's a mix. Um, Joan had briefly mentioned, oops, did we lose you, Joan? Um, Joan oh. had briefly mentioned what's called ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance, which is not actually an administrative policy explicitly. Um, it's a way in which capital is distributed and held in front of producers, uh, well, in, in front of really any kind of company at all these days, with the focus of um, creating a supply chain that is ethically and politically compatible with 
the public's values, the, the climate values, the, the anti-slave anti labor values, for example, things like that. The irony, of course, is that when you ship your oil production overseas, you're working with nations that are far less politically and ethically compatible than our North Dakota and Texas friends. But I wonder if Joan would share a little bit more about the ESG standards that are, are probably most responsible, should we say, Joan, for the price hike that we're seeing. Yeah, so, so ESG, again, is Environmental, Social, and Governance Standards. And the idea originally was not unfounded. In other words, you know, for publicly traded companies, it started with publicly traded, but now what's happened is the capital that funds the private company gets to hold you, these private companies to the same standard. But the, originally the idea was, look, a publicly traded company, we want to make sure that you as a, a publicly traded company who are, have, have qualified investors investing in your company, we want to make sure that things like your governing boards are legitimate, that they're thoughtful, that you're abiding by and following rules of good governance of a company, accounting, uh, accounting standards, et cetera, et cetera. And that was a good thing. But it was then uh, it was then recognized by the Obama administration and now carried on with the Biden administration that these ESG standards could be framed in a way whereby you could use them as a a yardstick of goodness right a yardstick of a yardstick of good ethical standards if we apply them to quote unquote the environment so suddenly environment social and governance. Governance, everybody would agree, is that we want good governance. What does it mean to be socially responsible? What does it mean to be environmentally responsible? Well, that begins to de determine that is based on one's interpretation. So these two administrations, their interpretation was if you don't see the world and the, the, the landscape, as you just described, Benjamin, where there's going to be you know, a future with no fossil fuel in it, if you don't agree with that vision that they have for the future of the world, then clearly you are a treacherous uh, company with treacherous intentions. And we therefore are going to hold up these, this yardstick. We've now, you know, we have a new yardstick that's even shorter than before. And if you don't abide by this, we are going to start limiting your ability in a free market. Remember, we're talking about a democracy with free markets purportedly. We're going to start dictating to you that what you can do as a private and public company is now impeded by our interpretation of the very thing that you do. Now, where this really began to hit the road, where the rubber hit the road, is that they, they investment banks like JP Morgan Chase, like BlackRock, these entities who are preaching, so these entities, so your listeners know, they are the they are institutional investors, and they are the ones that essentially underwrite much of corporate America. Uh, if Apple needs to go manufacture, you know, two billion more telephones, they don't use their own capital to do that. They'll go and and work with quote unquote, uh, institutional money, and they'll get the, the capital lent to them that they pay back over time. I, and I, I don't mean to use Apple as a specific example. They may fund a lot of their stuff because they have a lot of cash on hand. But the point is, any corporation in America is using institutional money. But it was decided because of the Biden administration, because of ideology, that suddenly we are going to not fund oil and gas development. And we're going to make claims about under using ESG. So now we're going to go and we're going to say, hey, oil company, you're treacherous and you don't meet these arbitrary ESG standards because your very existence, we don't agree with. We don't agree with your view of the role of fossil fuel in Western economies. Therefore, we're no longer going to deliver to you the capital. We're, never going to, we're not going to lend you the capital that you need to drill more. So that has been fundamental to not so a lack any of us so the way i describe it so jen saki last week said huh it's not our fault the oil companies it's their fault they've got nine thousand permits they just need to drill okay jen saki with what capital you've or you've ordained yourself the arbiter of what can be done with money and you've put pressure and and had willing allies and 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 collaborators in institutional investors like blackrock and like jp morgan chase and they're not investing in American energy, but instead they have no problem ethically investing billions of dollars in China, where we know there are slaves, where we know there is every kind of treachery in business, where we know that I'll give you an example. For 
for two weeks before the Olympics, they, the government mandated that all the smeltering plants be turned off so that you could actually see the sky in Beijing. Right. That was done as, you know, as a, as a theatrics by the Chinese government. But J.P. Morgan Chase and BlackRock, they want us to believe that they are the arbiters of the good investment. We're too dumb to know what that might be. We don't have the intellectual heft, but they want you to not pay attention to the fact that they have bet the house on China, China. America's most significant geopolitical enemy in modern history is now being funded by two of the largest investment banks in the world. While those two CEOs preach to America about the treachery of U.S. energy, which is cleaner, more innovative than anything going on in China. And so these are the disingenuous. I I love to get into debates with people who don't agree with me. But one of the premises for good debates has to be that we're all living and agreeing on certain facts. So you can't have, on one hand, uh, uh, an an institutional investor like BlackRock, on one hand, denying the legitimate, uh, uh, reliable business and banking culture of America in lieu of investing in China because they can make more money in China. That's an outrage. And everybody should be insulted intellectually because we're being spoon fed this under the guise of, quote unquote, the environment when it's completely unfounded. Uh, But these are the the, these are the levers being pulled that the average person in America would have no understanding of, because why should they? Because they just want to live their life, raise their children and enjoy the, the fruits of their labor. And but these are the levers behind the curtain that are being pulled that are really treacherous for the future of America and the West in general. Could you expound on why they're uh, treacherous for our future? Well, because they're deciding for us what values to fund or not fund. So, so for example, if you said, you know, we were looking at these two realities where they want cleaner energy, uh, and, and, but the stick is higher prices and you get to have a life that is not going to be the same with the comforts that you're accustomed to. They won't exist under the, the worldview of the Biden administration, right? And these investment banks. Uh, But on the other hand, they are very comfortable investing all sorts of money with a government and with in in a business culture in China where corruption is rampant. Uh, There are side deals. And every time you turn around, they will tell you and a Chinese business person. And I say this from experience. They will tell you anything they have to tell you in order to get you to write a check. Uh, There's every kind of corrupt activity in business there. And and these investment banks have decided on our behalf that they will defund, divest of oil and gas assets, but they but they will go and get in bed with the Chinese, which is is just ethically, those are those are just in complete opposition to each other. But they're asking us to accept this reality. And, and, and right now people are because I don't believe they understand the complete hypocrisy that we're being spoon fed in this case. And, and, and in the part, depth of authoritarianism is a borderline conspiracy even, theory. Um, well, so I, I mean, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know if it's so much a conspiracy anymore. We've just lived through a time where our neighbors to the north uh, literally just took bank money out of people's bank accounts in what was supposed to be a free country. We have Australia, what was described as a free country, who was literally arresting people who were not reporting their, their whereabouts to the government in a timely enough fashion. We live in a country now in America where you're not allowed to buy a stove, a gas stove in California, if you want one. So I don't know anymore how conspiratorial some of this stuff is personally. I think the world would be wise to uh, to look back 10 years ago and and our life 10 years ago, what were we able to do without government involvement or comment that today there's an enormous amount of of control being pushed upon us, whether we want it or not, and we're supposed to take it. And if you don't take it, you are an enemy to America. And I come from the perspective, are are we the enemy of America or are these large banks, investment banks, and these, these entities operating outside the normal congressional uh, uh, rules, are they actually a threat to us more than we are a threat to them? So it doesn't um, sound that the, the inflation is going to stop or the prices are going to change because this is all <laughs> part of the plan. That sounds like that's what you correct. guys are saying. That's okay. correct. That's what but, I would assert, Alma. I don't know if you would agree with that. Oh, well, I, uh, I would defer to you on that. Um, Benjamin, I hope you don't mind if I ask Joan a question. I, it just occurred to me while she was 
chatting. I would love to hear you riff a little bit, Joan, on what you think the best solutions to this are. I know our senator in North Dakota, Kevin Kramer, has has proposed a bill that would effectively force banks to lend money to um, oil producers and the like. I have mixed feelings about that as somebody who doesn't like using the hand of government to force anyone to do much of anything at all. Um, But I wonder what your take is. Uh, Well, I would agree with you in general. I don't like anybody who's writing another rule to make the rule uh, right, that is sort of mm-hmm. it's band-aids on counter band-aids and, counter yeah. dem- democratic. Um, so I would my my attitude is the 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 thing that would most effectively unlock all of the pricing constraints that exist, all of the supply constraints that exist is capital. So number one, everybody has to understand that ESG is actually more of a threat to our way of life than anything else. And so the first thing would be in the difficult, here's the difficulty. It's not a rule. This is, this is a belief, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is it's a not codified anywhere. It's not even a regulation. No. And this okay. is what makes, whoops. This is what makes it d- difficult is that these are, and I'll give you an example. The SEC, the security and exchange commission, just, the, just while everybody was in lockdown, they created an investigatory committee that will investigate ESG uh, uh, violations or something. Violations, but what is an ESG violation, right? But what, where is that codified? Oh, that's not. So we get into this circular thing. So when it comes to what do we do about it, so much of this has to be that we as voters, regardless of party, and I, I just feel strongly that these are places where we can agree that we can't be using government agencies to create rules and laws that are not that do not go through the painful process of congressional oversight and review. Even though we can get disgusted with our legislators and it's like, blah, 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 yak, 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 yak. And a lot of times they get nothing done. It's important for the listeners to understand that was the intention of the founders. They wanted law rulemaking and law passing to be difficult because the fewer laws there are, regulations there are, the, the, the more society functions kind of seamlessly and more smoothly. So what we've gotten into is this, this regulatory hand that is just tightening its grip on everything that we value in America, but without our consent. So the first thing I would do is, is require that every regulation that is passed in a, in an, in a calendar year needs to be reviewed either in mass by Congress. So they have to ratify the regulation. So this, and this, this is something that could readily be done. I've spoken to legislators where there would be a requirement that on an annualized basis, everybody has to, all the regulations that are passed and they can either do it in group, but if there's a regulation that Joan Salmon, you know, Congresswoman from X state doesn't like, I can flag it. And now it has to come through regular congressional discussion and if, it, if we can't agree, then it doesn't get passed because that's ultimately to the benefit of the American people. And, and that this would be a way to, number one, slow down regulation, make sure that there is some kind of oversight, because short of that, what you have is the executive branch reaching into the role of the legislative branch and using regulation to do what Congress either can't do or doesn't want to do. So that would be one major thing that I think would be useful. Jeez, you're painting a really scary picture. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been, you know, the, the, that silent fourth estate of our government, the agencies, I, the managerial elite class, I, I've been saying for a while that the, those are the real enemy and all these other cultural yes. concerns really um, either jive with their worldview or uh, are a distraction from the encroachment of that just regulatory Kafka-esque encroachment into every realm of life. And so I just want to reiterate that the gas prices and the inflation can be traced back directly to the ethics of the administration and the administrative state is the way that 100%. they're affecting 100%. that. And I, and I, again, I, if there's one thing kind of that COVID during the COVID years, when all of this was getting done, one of my mantras that that Alma has certainly heard me talk about, I would really urge your listeners and all of us to stop making people next to us, the enemy of all there is. This is so much bigger than my neighbor across the street who doesn't agree with me on vaccines or masks or doesn't agree with me on, on how soon the world will end. There is so much more that's so much more relevant and will affect our lives much more quickly. And, and, and to a, a pejorative sense in a pejorative sense, than all of that 
that person's my enemy. That per- I don't like that person. I have to agree. My only, only people who agree with me can come to my party. This is mm-hmm. not useful for society. And it makes life a well, whole it's lot useful less for the people who would like to control society. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. So I would just encourage people to really, um, really be intentional about you don't have to agree with everybody. There are married people. I happen not to be one of them, but there are married people whom I hear do not agree on everything. So why would we expect our neighbor or our cousin, or our siblings to agree with us on everything when a person's spouse doesn't agree with them on any, on everything. <laughs> so the, the polarization, uh, depolarize, uh, the populace kind of like the de- defund the police. No depolarize. The populace is, uh, the way yes. going forward. For us, for me, for me, that's how yeah. that's how I and I'm actively really trying to engage with people I don't agree with because mm. I want them to see what actually is happening, and it's it has nothing to do with your neighbors. It has everything to do with the hand of government. Yeah, I think my biggest passion in light of all of this is to highlight the humanity of people in the energy sector. Um, which I've done in this new music video of mine, 5,000 Candles, where you can see the actual faces of actual human beings who are bringing you the energy that you've come to expect um, every single day of your life. And um, obviously my work in Braver Angels as well, bringing the left and the right together also ties into that. But I really, if there was, if I had a magic wand and I could do one thing for this problem, it would be to instill some level of gratitude um, into the American public for the gift of our abundant energy and the people who are willing to take the risks to extract it. But we're not, um, the problem isn't that there's a shortage of energy. We could be, we were completely independent. No Just, shortage. We were a net exporter. Mr. In Boyce. 2020, in 2020. Which, which gave us dominance uh, and dominant world dominance or at least hedged our position uh, whatever that means and then uh, i mean to what degree we're going to use that to control the world or whatever that's another question but we had independence we had dominance and we had freedom Th- yes. those things uh, energy gives us freedom and energy freedom gives us freedom freedom uh has been a good thing for americans because we've done some pretty amazing things with our freedom I think we deserve our freedom and we, we need to be responsible with that for sure. Um, but freedom is good. I do, is that, uh, Benjamin, I, man, I, yes. That's okay. Right. Yeah, okay. I, we're, we're, I come okay. from the school of freedom is good. Okay. Uh, and yeah, yeah. And energy and, uh, re- uh, regulating the regulators is, uh, important. I think that should be a focus for everybody, regardless of their party. Uh, I do think that that really is an important element to all of this. And I would say, I think, I think the world uh, and I think Americans uh, since uh, kind of this Ukraine and Russia situation has revealed uh, the willingness of this administration to turn to enemies of America and enemies of democracy to buy oil and gas from those people, which we know is being extracted in less clean ways, with less humanity, with less, less gratitude, yeah. less efficiency, all of it, that that somehow is a reasonable solution is crazy. Number one. Number two, I hope that that people now understand that energy independence really is about national security and geopolitical position in the world. And, and whatever one, you know, look, I've lived in South America under dictatorial regimes. I would like to think that by now in 2022, the world, however imperfect America is, uh, there is no question that America is the greatest country in the history of the world, in my opinion. And it's because we do value freedom and, and the, the individual actually matters. And that's something to celebrate. And that's, and so if you're talking about dominating the world, quote unquote, I think if we can dominate with principles of individual liberty, that's going to be a much better world, that the individual matters and how you treat the individual matters. I think that's a good message and something to strive for. We've got a few bumper stickers going on here. Well, it was, uh, oh, I'm struggling to remember them. The individual matters. Freedom is good. Freedom is good. (laughs) We could develop a whole set of merch around this. Yeah, no, yeah. Merch is good. And we'll make it out of uh, petrochemicals, too. Absolutely. (laughs) So, Joan, you said that you do a lot of writing. Where do you stash your uh, writing? So, I'm on, I have a, I'm on Substack. Joan Salmon on Substack. Mm-hmm. And I, I put all of my writing there. And I predominantly have uh, 
mostly energy related, but I have to tell you, I'm much more committed. There's so much great content to comment about, about a whole slew of these kinds of things that there'll be more articles coming about just a variety of different things. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that for your listeners, there'd be some good content that will probably. Well, you, you're hinting at something, but you have to be a little bit more specific. Well, like no, there's just parrot so trafficking or something. <laughs> no, Do you regulate I mean, cockfighting? Just... Is that what you? <laughs> hey, give me a week. I'll be back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's just a lot of good content. Humans are funny, and and yeah. and they give us a lot of good good content to write about and comment on. Freedom is good. Humans are funny. Alma, I did listen to your your uh, song. What's it called? The Five Thousand Candles. Five Thousand Candles. I'll link that in the description. It's a very wonderful song. But you uh, tell us about your product and where people can find it. Oh, thank you so much. Um, they can find it on YouTube. Just search Five Thousand Candles, Alma Cook. Um, it should pop right up. Um, there's a picture of me in a hard hat in the thumbnail, so you get to see me in my natural environment. Joan actually was the co-director of photography for the, oh, really? the North Dakota unit yeah. of that. Yeah, she was a really, really big help. We we traveled all over the over the landscape looking for the, like which are the which are the best uh, pump jacks and natural gas flares that we should yeah, <laughs> capture. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I that honestly that video is my heart and soul. If there's one thing you can do um, related to the work that I produce, it's to watch that video today and share it with somebody who you think could maybe use a, a dose. Of of gratitude for the Americans uh, filling their tanks and braver angels. You work in braver angels, braverangels.org slash music. You can find out about all of our depolarization programming there. Um, we bring together the very hard left and the very hard right and everything in between um, to help us see the humanity in one another and have more civil conversations. I think this is a good place to end it. So I'm going to do the uh, cheesy wrap up. Joan and Alma, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, Alma, thank you for uh, connecting with, with Joan. Joan, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, even Wonderful though you, it's been kind of a scary pleasure uh, <laughs> to listen to you speak. I think some people are into that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a market there. <laughs> <laughs>